Have you ever been blamed for something that was not your fault? Did you like that? Like, ah, oh, awesome, thank you. Uh, maybe you're a kid, you're blamed for losing your dad's tools, but you knew it was your dad. He just misplaced them, all right? Doesn't make you feel good. So a couple years ago, a number of years ago, I pulled up to this gas station, diesel truck, old Ford diesel truck, and I had about a third of a tank, and I told the guy, fill it up. He filled it up with gasoline. Yeah, so that's a bummer. And then when he realized it, he's like, oh, man, I'm so sorry. Man, my boss just told me, like, I shouldn't do that. I'm like, well, he's right. You shouldn't do that. He's like, I'm going to get fired. Oh, no. And, and so I just said, bro, it's okay. I will pay for the gas you put in and fill up my, my rear tank with diesel. So he does that, and I ate it. it must, back then, gas was like four bucks a gallon. So it's like, I don't know. 15, 20 gallons plus diesel. So just ate it. I said, I'll, I don't want to do that for you. So I go home, have to you know, pull off a fuel line, empty out all this diesel gasoline mix into all these gas containers that I had for like 10 years. Like, what do you do with a bunch of diesel gas mix, right? It's like, it was too much. You can make a fire with it, but I don't make that much of a fire. I can make a bomb. I didn't want to make a bomb. So I was like, what do I do with this? So I had it for a long time. Uh, but two weeks later, I get a call from an old family friend, friend of my mom's. She goes, there's a guy who's going around telling people right now that you got him fired from his job for filling up your diesel with gasoline. I'm like, what? After I ate that, I, can't, I was just like, no way. She's like, you need to call him. I said, no, I don't do that. I'm not gonna call him. She's like, well, I'll call him then. I said, you go, girl. May God establish the works of your hands. Right on, do it. So in that moment, I felt this just kind of, oh, boy. Well, there is in us a tendency when we get backed into a corner to not just take the blame, but to find a scapegoat. And it's in us from Adam. So you remember Adam? The first word Adam speaks is when God brings to him Eve. And what does he say? He writes a poem. Bone of my bone. Flesh of my flesh, she shall be called, whoa, man, right? It's brilliant, it's beautiful. The next words out of Adam's mouth are after they sin and after they go and make clothes and they try to hide from God. Not the most brilliant plan. God finds them, like finding a one-year-old. God finds them and he says to Adam, bro, what'd you do? What does Adam say? He doesn't answer the question, does he? He doesn't say, I ate of the forbidden fruit. He says, it was the woman you gave me. Most brilliant line, I think, in the entire Bible. Throws two people under the bus like that, God and his wife, like so quickly. And from that point on, that's been our thing. We do that. We, we want to find somebody as a scapegoat. A lot of times, we blame God. Okay, that's our story. Genesis 42, verse 26. Look at this. Short little text, and then we're going to expand on it. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. And he said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this? that God has done to us. 
okay? It'd be like you going to Costco and you buying a bunch of groceries and you put it in your trunk and you go home and you're unloading the trunk and unloading the groceries and in the bottom of one of the bags, you find 500 bucks. What would you say? Would you be like, God, why have you done this to me? You'd be like, yeah, let's go back. Let's do this again. What's their problem? Here's the story. These guys kidnapped their brother, sold him into slavery. He's put into a pit, put into prison, works his way up to prime minister, finds out there's gonna be seven years of plenty. He stores up in those seven years of plenty. Now they're into the famine. When the famine hits, his dad and his older brothers are up north and it hits them. And now they're starving to death. So dad says to the 10 brothers, go down and get some food. They go down there to Egypt. They meet Joseph, but they can't recognize him because he walks like an Egyptian and talks like an Egyptian and looks like an Egyptian. But he recognizes them. So there's this kind of great play. We'll talk about this on Wednesday. It's awesome. And uh, at the end, Joseph just says, no, I don't believe you guys. You guys are spies. They're like, no, we're not spies. All right, next time you return, when you're gonna want more bread, you have to do these things to prove you're not a spy. So like, okay, great. From that point on, they refer to Joseph as the man. The man was rude to us. The man wasn't kind to us. We don't want to go back to the man. It's funny. It becomes, he becomes the man. Look out for the man. So they're like, oh no, the man. Now they leave. First night, they look in their bags and the money's there. And they freak out because now they're not just going to be accused of being thieves or of spies. They're going to also be accused of being a thief. So they're super worried. Oh no. He's going to think we're spies and thieves we're not gonna be able to come back down here and buy bread. And they instantly say, God, what are you doing? Are they right? Is God doing this to them? Is God causing these things to happen? It's a good question. Just because somebody in the Bible says something about God, you have to know this. It doesn't mean it's correct, right? Read the book of Job. The majority of the book of Job, God says this, You three guys and your buddy, you three guys and your buddy, you have not spoken rightly about me. So you have to evaluate what people say. Is it actually the truth or not? Okay? And it's very common to blame God, but just because it's common to blame God does not mean it's correct. Right? I sat with a couple a week and a half ago who lost their son in very difficult circumstances. And they said this to me. They said, well, we know God took our son. I said, are you sure about that? What do you mean by saying God took your son? I understand your heartache. I understand how hard this is. What does that mean to you? And we had to actually process through that. It's a very common thing. So is it right? Right, it's very common. In fact, you see in the book of Job three times, Job 6.4, Job 19.2, Job 27.2, three times God's blamed. But we actually have an inside scoop on chapter one where there's another player that Job doesn't know about. We're given that information, right? Right, let me show you another story where God is blamed. Flip forward, if you would, to the book of Ruth. To me, this is maybe the best example of somebody who goes through trauma and then blames it on God. And you have to ask, is she right? So here's the story, I'll fill you in. Ruth happens at the time of Judges. Is Judges a good book to read to your kids to put them to bed at night? Mm-mm. Why? Because it is horrifically evil. It says there was no king in Israel. And so 
everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's a brutal, horrific book, tons of evil in it. So it's in the time of judges, it's a bad time. There's a famine at Bethlehem, a husband with his wife and two sons say, we gotta get out of here. And so they moved to Moab because there were jobs in Moab. Is that a sin? I don't think so. It'd be like five years ago here in Grants Pass when we were down economically and people were going to North Dakota because there was oil out there, right? And oil was a really expensive commodity back then. And they're like, Matt, I gotta leave. Guys working at McDonald's are making 18 bucks an hour. I mean, that's a happy meal right there. I can do that, right? So people, were, that's okay, that's fine. So he, I don't think that's a sin. Elisha tells a widow to leave Israel when there's a famine coming. Not, that's not a sin. Some commentaries wanna flatten out Ruth and say, ah, the reason why bad things happen is because of her sin. I don't believe that. We sometimes flatten out very thick books because it's easier that way. Ruth is one of those books you better sit down with a good cup of coffee or tea and meditate and pray over. What does this mean? All right, so they leave. In the land there, the boys take wives and then the husband dies. And then one of the sons dies. And then the second son dies. And the end is three widows living in a home. Dangerous. So in that moment, what happens Ruth gets word, not Ruth, Naomi gets word that back at home in Bethlehem where she still owns her family farm, it's prospering again. So she says to her two daughters, I'm going home. One of them stays, one of them goes with her. And when she gets to Bethlehem, look at what she says. It's verse 19, Ruth chapter one. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? Her name means pleasant. She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. I went away full and Yahweh has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When Yahweh has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Naomi, after her calamity, the loss of her husband and her two sons, she says, God did this to me and I'm bitter. How'd you like her as a mother-in-law? Christmas would be interesting, wouldn't it? Is she right? Did God do this to her? Did God kill her husband and her two sons? Is she right? Because it's super easy to blame God, but that does not mean it's right. Just because something is common does not mean it's correct. So this is a hard message. I will put that out there right now. I don't think normally a pastor would try to do this on a Sunday, but I'm not normal. And I don't think you guys are either. I think you're smart enough to kind of grasp this. And you're gonna need this because eventually you're gonna run into Naomi's and the brothers of Joseph. People like this or you will run into it yourself and you'll be wondering, how do I explain this? Do I blame God? Is he the one or somebody else? So what you see in Christian circles is there are three big ways to explain stuff like this. And each person in these big circles, they love Jesus and they're committed to his kingdom they're not heretics. 
They just make different presuppositions before they look at the Bible. And those presuppositions drive where they end. All right? So I'm going to explain those big three to you, tell you where I stand, and then give you answers to the objections people give me for where I stand. All right? So the first one, and all three would say this, God is good. They're all going to agree with the statement, God is good, but it's what they define as good that's different. So group number one, I call them stoic goodness. I don't know a better word for it. It's kind of the fatalistic goodness crew. So that crew right there, they would say this. Yes, God killed Naomi's husband and her two sons. That they put this firmly at the feet of God. It's called meticulous sovereignty. And it means this. It means that everything is being driven, Ephesians 1.10, by God's plan. There is a blueprint that God follows absolutely, unwaveringly. It's his plan. And they have this statement for that. They say this, the, dan- the dust dances to the decree of God. All right? So the very itty-bitty little particles that are in the air right now, there's lots of them. Do you know in one foot by one foot by one foot, there is 200,000 dust particles. Do you know that the majority of those dust particles are made up of dead skin cells? You are a cannibal, right? You breathe, (sighs) you know I'm full. (laughs) I don't need to eat, right there. That's life. So what they say is this, the trajectory of all 200,000 of those in every cubic foot of air, God is decreeing where those go. Meticulous sovereignty, right? So if something happens that we say is good or bad or ugly, it was decreed by God. And because God is good, then, that, then his decrees must be good. So whatever happens is good. We might see it as good or bad or ugly. God just says, it's all good because I decreed it. And so whatever God decrees because he's good, becomes good. That's how they define it, right? So one of their leading theologians, I won't call them leading theologians, one of their theologians clarified it like this. His name is Gordon H. Clark. He said this, I want to say emphatically that when a man gets drunk, goes home, shoots his family, that that was the will of God. And he is famous for saying that. And you can just Google his name, Gordon H. Clark, and that will come up. So I just am in the middle of reading a book by Dr. John Lennox, where he says this, when you do that, the moment you make that jump, here's what happens. You have to then say, God is also willing that ISIS kidnaps and rapes and brutalizes people. You're also saying that the Boko Haram that kidnapped all those teenage girls from that school, God willed that. You're also saying the Las Vegas shooter who went down, only name him and killed all those people willed by God. The, the man that molests or rapes somebody is willed by God. That's what you're saying then. It's called theistic determinism is another term for it. That God determines all these things. And so at the end of the day, like Naomi, you have to say, he made it happen. I'll just tip my hand right now and say, that's not where I stand. But I have people that I love and we talk about and spar a little bit that do stand there. And this is what I'll say to them, just to poke them a little bit. I'll say, okay, if that's right, that the dust dances to the decree of God, that the drunk that goes home and it's God's will, okay, okay, I'll take that. 
then I say this, why is God ever angry? If God decrees all these things to happen, why does God get angry? Because in the Old Testament, he's angry at a lot of things. What is he angry at? If he decreed it, why does he get angry? If it's his blueprint, who's he getting mad at? He has to get mad at himself. Man, I'm so mad at me from decreeing this to happen. Right? It, be, it becomes some hoops and you can jump through them, but the hoops are interesting to me. It's a hard hoop to jump through. And then I'll mention Ezekiel 33, 11, where God says this. He says this, and you have to read the whole chapter. It's brilliant. Ezekiel 18 and 33 are, are twins. Simon, they're brilliant. He says this in Ezekiel 33, 11. He says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I want them to repent and turn back to me. Well, if God wanted that, why doesn't he just decree it? Right? If God, what you really want is for wicked people to repent and come back to you, and if you decree everything, your blueprint, then just decree it. So how do you explain that? It's hard to explain. Or James 1.13, that God does not tempt with evil, that there's no shadow of turning in him. Right? And then it goes on to say this, really, there's something else at play, and it's in us, and when this thing called lust, epithumeo, gets overheated in us, then look out, we're capable of bad things. James 1, 13 through 15. Or Proverbs 19, 2. It says this, when the folly of a man leads to his ruin, his heart rages against God. That one's a pretty good one. When a man does foolish things and it ruins him, he then shakes his head and goes, God, why'd you do this to me? To me, it's the 10, Proverbs 19, 2 is the 10 brothers of Joseph. God, why are you doing this to me? He didn't do this to you. Wednesday, we'll talk about that, right? So, so I don't stand in this camp, but I, but I understand it, right? Then camp number two, where these things happen, God is good, is this. I just call it um, kind goodness or fairy love. And what the focus of this crew is uh, the soft part of God. Exodus 34, 6, God is loving and compassionate and graceful and merciful. And there's a truth to that, right? They really focus in on that. But what they end up with is a God who only cares about my comfort and my happiness and not my character and my holiness. They get just half of God right. And so it'd be like this. Um, Remember the story of my daughter breaking her arm? Okay, you're either new or you have amnesia, which is fine. I'll tell you really quick. Okay, daughter's five years old. We go to Ashland. Uh, firstborn, so you learn a lot with your firstborn. I'm surprised they ever survived. She kept telling me, push me higher, push me higher, push me higher. And guess what I did? Pushed her higher. The last time I pushed her too high. And she kind of did a, a cartwheel out of the back of that swing and then landove on her left arm. And I just heard this snap. It was very apparent something bad had happened. Pick her up, her arm looks like the letter Z. I soup her up. Um, we gather and we pray for her. I put her in my car. And then I had a decision to make. Do I take her to the hospital in Ashland? It's closer. But what are they going to do? Are they going like, to like rub a crystal on it? It'll be fine. Let me rub this crystal on it. <laughs> so I said, no, no, we're going to RVMC. All right, okay. So, we, so now we're on the freeway and I'm driving pretty fast. And Chris is in the back, you know, holding her arm. And she's saying, I don't want to go. 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 They're going to put a needle on my arm. I said, yeah, it's probably true. They probably are going to put a needle. I don't want to go, please. I just want to go home. Right? I keep telling, no, 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 no. We were going. I don't want to. Just crying. And then all of a sudden she got quiet. And she said, dad, we don't need to go to the hospital. 
Jesus healed me. <laughs> right? And she holds up her arm. It's the letter Z. Nah, not yet. Maybe, but not yet. So we kept going. All right. And we get to the hospital and big giant needle right in her arm and she's crying and she's mad and all this kind of stuff. All right? The kindness part, if you just say, hey, what's kind to do here? I would say, okay, sweetie, let's not go to the hospital. Let's go to Walmart, get some extra strength Tylenol. Let's get a DVD and let's get some ice cream because I just want you to be comfortable and happy. But I would forever make her crippled in life, right? And when you do this to Christianity, what happens is Christianity becomes a cruise ship. It's all about your comfort and all about your happiness. And prayer becomes the bell you ring so God will come and fetch you a new pillow. And it gets weird because when it stops being a seven-day cruise in the Caribbean and bad things happen, you shake your fist at God. God, why is this happening to me? Well, there's some other things at play here that God, like a good dad knows, Matt, there's some brokenness in you. And we need to go to the hospital. And it's not gonna be fun, but it's gonna be good for you. It's gonna build character in you and holiness in you. And that is the entire chapter of Hebrews 12. And we forget that, 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 that part of God for part number two, when that gets lost, we don't understand the good discipline of our father, taking us to the hospital because of broken things in us to make us the kind of people he wants to spend eternity with, right? So that's to me, number two. Number three, I don't even know what to call it. It kind of sits in the middle of these two. So you can call it in-between or balance or whatever. Balance sounds arrogant. I don't want to call it that, but it's the in-between one. And this is what it says. And this is where I land. God did not kill Naomi's husband and her two sons. God didn't do that. I know what God does. It's Genesis one and two. God doesn't do that. But God is able to do, if you read the whole book of Ruth, God is able to take really hard things and out of really hard things, bring forth incredible beauty. And that's what you see. End of the book with Naomi, I'm full now. Her life is changed. It's made better. It's awesome. And what you see, I think in the majority of scripture is this. God's greatest work is that work. We call it redemption. From Genesis 3, things fractured and broke was supposed to be beautiful and incredible, becomes ugly and bad, and God keeps on working to redeem it. And that's his greatest work. And you see that stretching from Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation 20, taking broken things and making them better, right? Even hard things like death. And my verses are Romans 8, 28. We know all things work together for good, to those that love God and call the to his purpose. I have Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the thoughts I have towards you. Thoughts of peace, thoughts of shalom to bring you to a glorious end. Not thoughts of wickedness and evil and bad, shalom thoughts, right? Second Corinthians four seventeen. We know these light afflictions are but for a moment. And there are afflictions. Sometimes we have to go to the hospital. We know these light afflictions are but for a moment, but they're working in you and me an exceedingly great weight of glory. To me, that balances it, okay? But even more than that, that's called systematic theology where you grab like verses and you put them together because they have a theme. I think there's another way to look at the Bible. It's actually one that I prefer and it's called biblical theology. It's where you just read the Bible from front to back, and you just kind of go through the Bible and you say, okay, here are the big things that God seems to care about, all right? Here's a theme that I think says the same thing that I said right there. 
And it says, play on these two words in the Hebrew. One word is translated evil, and the other word is translated good. In the Hebrew, the word for evil, guess what it is? Anybody know? I've said it before. It's raw. Isn't that an awesome word for evil? If you were thinking about what's a really great word for evil? Raw, right? So in the Bible, raw is translated evil. The word for good is the Hebrew word tov. And when God works in Genesis 1, over and over it says this. He would end the day by saying, it's tov. It's good, it's good, it's good. So Genesis 1 and 2, it's tov, it's tov, it's tov, it's tov. But then Genesis 3, something happens and raw enters in. There's this raw. And what you see from that point on is humans animated by a force end up bringing lots of raw into God's world. Genesis 6 with the flood. Babylon, over and over. Abraham, there's raw. But what happens is God takes the raw of humans, raw, and then he actually works it and brings out of raw, tov. We call that redemption. I'll give you the best example I have of it. It's the first really big bad guy in the Bible. His name is Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is raw. He takes the babies of the Hebrews and he throws them into the Nile River to kill them. It's genocide. It's infanticide. It's bad. It's evil. It's raw, right? But what happens in that story? If you pay pay attention to it, here's what happens. One of the babies is thrown into the Nile. Raw. But he floats. And he's drawn out of the river. His name actually means drawn out. It's Moses. And Moses, the raw was supposed to kill him, but actually that same raw goes down and he comes out and he becomes the savior and the one that brings good for the people. Okay, that's a theme in the Bible that God will take our raw, raw, and he actually turns it against it. And out of the very thing that was supposed to be raw, the killing of babies in the Nile, out comes the savior, out comes the deliverer. That's a theme in the Bible. And so that's why my camp is this one right here. No, God doesn't do that. But God will take human raw and brilliantly, he'll bring tove out of it. All right, so here's the objections I get. Objection number one is this. Okay, Matt, if God just creates good, why doesn't God create good again? Why doesn't he make it Eden again? Why do we have all this bad? Why doesn't he take all the evil of drug pushers and pimps, and murderers, and the evil of my neighbor's barking dog, and remove it, someone says, yeah, (laughs) and remove it. Why doesn't he do that? Why doesn't he get all the raw out of earth? My answer is always simple. If God did that, got all the raw out of earth, what would happen to you? Is there any raw in you? Yeah, probably right? That's number one. Number two is this. God is doing that. That right now he's doing this incredible thing in you and me. He's getting the raw out of us, right? It's called sanctification. That God keeps taking our raw as we confess the raw to him. He takes that raw, cleanses us, cures us, and makes us tov. That God is actually actively doing that right now. He's getting the hell out of us. And one day he'll get the hell out of earth. That's really, to me, the end of the book. So he is doing it. If you got rid of all the raw, we'd be gone. That's issue number one. Issue number two is people say this. Okay, Matt, but I read the prophets. 
You're saying God doesn't cause calamity. God doesn't cause raw. God doesn't do that kind of stuff. But I read the prophets and the prophets say this, that God was gonna grab Babylon and bring Babylon over and they were gonna destroy and stomp and crush and kill the people in Israel. Doesn't God do that? Yeah, he does that. Well, then what in the world? He's causing death and disaster and raw. What's your answer to that? Israel, at the time God brought Babylon over and Nebuchadnezzar, what was the state of Israel? Were they a good nation representing Yahweh well? No, they were a raw nation. God gives his analysis of them in Jeremiah 32, verses 33 to 35. He says this, he says, you guys have become worse than the countries around you. You've done something that God says this, I never commanded you to do. I didn't even imagine in my mind that you would do this. You're taking your babies and you're sacrificing them to Moloch. God says, it's unimaginable that you would do that. You're worse than the surrounding nations. And so I'm gonna bring Babylon and that evil empire and then come squash you. And what you see in the Bible is this, God will often use evil to judge evil, totally. And if I'm an evil person, I should be afraid. If I'm an evil individual, if I'm an evil nation, I should be afraid because God will use evil, the very evil that I'm doing, he'll use that and it'll come against me and it will judge me, absolutely. So to me, that's the answer to those things. And the third one is this. Okay, if, if God doesn't do all this stuff, then who's doing it? What's the big problem on earth then? Because there's lots of raw. So I think as Christians, we have to know what the problem is. And I think we believe earth is a playground when the Bible screams at us, it's a battleground. In fact, at our design, God says this, I'm making you guys to subdue the earth. The word subdue is a war term. You got a battle. Because what turns up in Genesis chapter three? The serpent, Revelation 12 calls him Satan. And the serpent co-ops two people, Adam and Eve, and gets them to do treason against the rightful rule of the king. And what happens when they commit treason against the rightful king, raw is released. It's really bad. And that raw keeps on going and keeps on going and keeps on going, right? So the problem in Genesis 3, it seems to lay out to me, the real issue is this serpent co-opting people on his side and that releases raw. So I'll give you a text because I think this just echoes throughout the Bible. Turn with me, if you would, really quick to Isaiah. This is a brilliant passage. If you know the book of Isaiah, it's doing two main things. It's this quest for the real king. Oh, there's Hezekiah, but Hezekiah fails. If you read it, there's a quest for the real king. And then it culminates in Isaiah 53. Fantastic text, right? But the second thing Isaiah does is this. Who's the real enemy? Is it Gog and Magog? Is it the Assyrians? Is it the Babylonians? Who's the real enemy? It's those two things. So look at Isaiah 65. And if you're versed in the New Testament, there should be these phrases that you're like, wow, I've heard that, read that before. Because these are sprinkled all throughout the New Testament. Look at verse 17, Isaiah 65. 
For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. Anyone heard that before? Right? Revelation. And the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Revelation. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. God's gonna say, here's what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. What does God create? Tov. No more shall there be an infant who lives but a few days. Parents will not bury their sons and daughters. An old man who does not fill out his days, for the young man shall die a hundred years of age, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. You're going to love your job. Some of you are saying, praise God, bring it now. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of Yahweh and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. It's gonna be like Eden when you walked with me and talked with me. While they're yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Lions are going vegan. They're all gonna live in Portland and be vegans. Happy day that will be. And then all of a sudden, you got this like glorious tove, 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 yeah. And then dust shall be the serpent, singular, the serpent's food. Huh? How did he come into this picture? They, plural, shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain says Yahweh. This is an incredible text. This is what I create. And I'm going to create in such a way that the serpent is kicked into the dust. And they, this group of they, whoever that they is, you can make the they whatever you want. I have an idea who who they are. And they, this group aligned with that serpent, they're not going to hurt anymore. Finally, the real enemy will be dealt the death blow. That's what this whole text is about. Isaiah's, I want you to tell about the right king. It's Isaiah 53. I want you to tell you about the real enemy. It's the serpent and those that hurt. There's coming a new creation where those things are finally done away with, right? And the New Testament just keeps this up, doesn't it? Ephesians 2, 2, hey, the prince of the power of the air. So when I grew up, that meant the prince of the power of the airwaves, right? Don't listen to the radio. That music is satanic. Remember Hell's Bells? Every kid in youth group had to watch Hell's Bells. Look out, man. You're going to listen to O Sherry and just want to kill your neighbor. Right? I mean, just crazy stuff like that. So look out for those airwaves. And then the TV, the one-eyed devil box. Don't you dare get those airwaves in you either. So we had all these ideas. Today we could say the cell phone, like the, the air, right? That's not what it's talking about. It's, it's the one that's in control of this 
region right here. And then it says this, the prince of the power there that is now at work and the children of disobedience. He co-ops people still to then create raw, just like Genesis chapter three. So Paul is saying, that's the source, that prince of the power of the air. That's why in chapter six of that same book, verse 12, it says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. That's why John would say, 1 John 5, 19, the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And this is after the cross and after the resurrection. Yet, yet the serpent's been smashed, but he's still writhing and causing damage right now. That's what it's saying, right? I can go on and on and on. The real, the real enemy, we gotta get this. The real enemy, the real reason why the world is bad, the real reason why these three people died it's because there's an enemy who wants to steal and to kill and to destroy. Even Jesus in John 14, 30 calls him the prince of this world. That's where the blame goes. So what's our hope? What's our hope in this situation? It's Christmas. I'm serious. Our hope is Christmas, that God would come in the flesh and he would be born in a really tough situation. I was just reading about this guy. Um, his name is Arminius. Have you heard of him? I'm not talking about the guy that's the theologian. He lived in like uh, 10 AD and he was a German and he led this revolt. But they're talking about that time. And one of the generals at that same time came down into Palestine where Jesus lived and in a couple of days crucified 2000 Jews. So Jesus in his region, while he's growing up, he would watch friends, family, neighbors be nailed to crosses by the Romans. He would see his family having to be forced to pay taxes that put them into really deep poverty. He would see widows and orphans neglected. He would have himself be betrayed by a friend and denied by all of his buddies. He'd be kicked and mocked and scourged and put on these fraud trials and convicted of something he did not do and then finally nailed to a cross. Now why? Why did it have to look like that? Because if you read the Old Testament, here's what you find. Everything that happened to Jesus is what God hates and what God gets angry at. Injustice, abuse, lies. Everything God hates ends up happening to Jesus. All the raw of the Old Testament is poured out into Jesus. And then what happens? Out of that comes resurrection. God takes the worst and the most graphic evil you could possibly imagine, allows it to be poured out on himself so that he could turn it into Resurrection Sunday, Tov. That's the whole message of the Bible, that I can take your raw. You send your sins violently into me, but I can take your raw and I can actually make out of your raw Tov. That's what Jesus does. It's the culmination of this great, incredible story. It's brilliant. So at the end of the day, here's what you have. You have two ways to look at life. And how you view God is really important because it will matter. It will determine how you live. Narrative one, number one is the 10 brothers of Joseph and Naomi and the friends of Job. Narrative number one is that, and it's this. This world stinks and God has failed me. And I'm bitter. 
That's narrative number one. Do you wanna live that narrative? Because what I see is a better narrative, a better story. And it's God is good and this world is broken and there's a real enemy who wants to create raw. But if I allow Jesus to take my raw, even in my raw, he can create tov. It's called confession. It's called repentance. God can take the very raw in me and when I give it to him and bring it to him, even raw done to me, God can take it and out of that can come resurrection. Tov. What story do you want to live? Because it'll matter. Do you shake your fist at God? Or do you say, take my raw, take my ashes and give me beauty and tov because he's the only one that can do that. And that's what the table represents. That's what you're eating. You're eating the worst raw ever could happen that God, the only innocent one ever should be treated the way he was treated. But three days later, the greatest victory ever, tov. And what happens is God then says, join with me. Get angry at what I'm angry at. Read the Old Testament. Get angry at the same things. Join with me in seeing raw change the tov because I can do that. This message is huge to me because there was a while I was really firmly in this camp. And I had some things happen in my life that caused me to go Naomi, some hard events. Or I said, God, why are you doing this to me? Why are you doing this to me? And there was in me this, this bitterness that started to well up and a hardness. And I started studying, I started thinking about, well, maybe there's a different way to view the narrative. And I started thinking about this narrative and man, it softened me and it brought gladness to me. And it brought me wanting to say, Jesus, I want to join with you in the rescue mission. Jesus, I want to see the raw in me changed. And I want to see the raw in my community changed. And only you can do that. So I want to join with him. It was transformational for me. I want that same thing for you. Maybe you brought raw in here today. You can give it to Jesus today. You can confess that. And the Bible says he will cleanse you from that. Cure you of it. Convert it from raw to tov. Maybe evil's been done to you and you carry that weight. And maybe like Naomi, I'm empty now. You can bring that raw to him and he can change it and bring beauty to your life. He's the only one. He's the great redeemer. Raw to tov. So Jesus this day, I pray that each one of us sees you as beautiful. That our perspective is a perspective that makes our hearts long and leap for you. I confess in my own life, Lord, where I've allowed raw to make me bitter. I thank you for your ability to take my raw, to take my ashes, to take my grief, 
and to give me tov. I pray for any in here that have raw, raw done to them. My heart breaks for them. You're angry at those same things. You allowed that to happen to you so that you could demonstrate your power in converting it to tov. May we bring raw done to us to you. And may you redeem it and transform it and make us beautiful like you. So may we eat and may we drink of that Genesis 3.15 crushing of the serpent that wrapped around our heart. May we eat and may we drink of your victory on the cross. May we eat and may we drink and may we become more than conquerors through you. May we become Tov. I ask this in your name.